0: This week, the classic research methods of the historian, ancient texts, museum artifacts, and carefully controlled experiments. Uh, There
1: really hasn't been anything like our experiment before. And the
0: sunken cities of Egypt show off their
2: treasures in a new exhibition. They had never been discovered before. I was convinced they were under the sea.
0: Plus, making antibiotics like you'd build a house out of Lego. This is The Nature Podcast for May the 19th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith.
3: And I'm Noah Baker. This week, a new exhibition opens in London chronicling the work of an underwater archaeologist who found not one, but two lost cities.
0: Here's Kerry. One day in 2001, in a boat a few kilometres off the coast of Egypt, archaeologist Frank Goddio strapped on his diving mask and plunged into the Mediterranean. He and his team had been mapping the area under the sediment, looking for the remains of three fabled cities. It took much less time than he had planned to find
2: something. I was excavating the very first day of the mission and under 1.8 meters of sediment I came across a big block of red granite but the visibility was extremely poor underwater, and when I started to clean that block I could not realize what it was. I could see a big foot but I said, no, this it's too big to be a foot of a statue, thus it must be something else, and that. Well, then after, a few metres away, we found the face, and I understood that uh, I was in presence of a gross statue of a god.
0: Frank Godio had found a statue of the Egyptian god of the Nile, Happy.
2: He is the one bringing fertility to the kingdom of Egypt and abundance to the people of Egypt. This is why he is represented Uh, holding an offering table.
0: At almost six metres tall, happy as an imposing presence. From this week he's on display here at the British Museum's new exhibition, Sunken Cities. But he once stood at the mouth of a port, near the entrance to an immense temple, in a city that was considered lost to history.
2: We have heard, of course, of those uh, three cities of Canopus, Tunis and Recaillon by ancient texts and uh, they had never been discovered before. I was convinced they were under the sea.
0: So convinced was Goddio that he spent three years mapping the contours of the seabed and beneath, over an area of 100 kilometres. The team's investigations gave them a couple of promising places to look, places where the seabed threw up magnetic anomalies, hinting at structures beneath the surface. In 1999, they found a large temple in the city of Canopus. But two mysterious cities remained, Phonis and Heracleion, named in ancient texts, but never found. Another object on display at the exhibition clears up that mystery. A two meter tall, thick granite block covered in neat columns of hieroglyphs. Can I have you tell me about the stella?
2: Yes, <laughs> it's a stella made of diorite, which is a very hard stone. And you can see that it's absolutely intact, which is extremely rare. It's a beautiful piece, but it has an historical importance also because it solves a 2000 year mystery. That Stella taught us that we were in the city of Tunis because at the end of the text it's written, Pharaoh orders that that Stella be erected in the city of Tunis and we discovered that artifact in the temple of the city of Herakéon. We were sure we were in the city of Herakéon. Then suddenly, in the temple, that artifact tells you, you are in Tonis. Thus Tonis and Herakéon was one and the same city. Mystery
0: solved. There were not two missing cities, but one with two names. Thonis is its Egyptian name, and Heraclion the Greek. This melding of cultures is one of the most interesting things about Thonis Heraclion for archaeologists. Here's co-curator of the exhibition, Aurelia Masson-Berghoff.
4: You have religious practices from different cultures, so Egyptian, but also Greek and Phoenician culture coming together and uh, that showcase here Shows you a few of the imported offerings and ritual equipment discovered at Pony Seraclion. Uh, this little uh, exquisite uh, limestone head was made in Cyprus uh, in uh, the 5th century BC probably and it, bears, uh, it sports a pointed cap which is typical of Phoenician or Persian uh, costume. It possibly depicts either a devotee of a Phoenician or Persian origin or maybe even a god. So evidence form for religious practices which are really different.
0: Aurelia's favorite object demonstrates this same theme.
4: I talk a lot about Arsinoe. This is indeed one of my favorite pieces and it's coming from the, the sea at Canopus. Ah. Uh, she's the beautiful lady with the transparent garment.
0: Arsinoe was a Greek princess born about 2,300 years ago when Egypt was in transition from an area ruled by its own pharaohs to one ruled by her Greek dynasty, the Ptolemies. Her royal line ends with the famous Cleopatra. Arsinoe had a tumultuous life three sons by her first husband, then she married her half-brother, who killed two of them, and finally she married her full brother, who deified her when she died and promoted her as a goddess to both Egyptians and Greeks.
4: And he promoted her cult so well that both Greek and Egyptian living in Egypt worshipped that Greco-Egyptian goddess. And she's represented here uh, in marvelous uh, masterpiece uh, of Egyptian Greek statuary. So this is a statue made of dark local stone, this is uh, an Egyptian stone. The posture is very Egyptian, so it's a striding, confident pose. Um, but, as you can see, um, the uh, sensuality of her body is, uh, you can guess it through the transparency of her garment, and that is highly reminiscent of Greek masterpiece. So this, is, this object is really, for me, one of the perfect examples of the fusion of Greek and Egyptian style.
0: Arsinoe and her friends are only a small fraction of what Frank Goddio believes must be hiding beneath the waves.
2: We are working there since 20 years now, but I would say that we haven't touched more than 5% of the site. Thus, we have some centuries of work ahead of us.
0: I have a diving qualification. Can I come and help?
2: Yes, of course. Dive with us.
0: That was Frank Goddio and before him Aurelia masson birkhoff co-curator of the British Museum exhibition Sunken Cities. If you're in town, it opens this week and runs till the end of November this year. If you're not, don't worry because Sharmini Bundell was there at the exhibition too and she's made a video featuring Happy the God of the Nile and plenty of other highlights. Check that out at youtube.com slash nature video channel. There's also a review by historian Andrew Robinson in next week's magazine. Nature.com. Slash nature.
3: Coming up in the research highlights, a quick and cheap test for Zika virus and primordial rocks come to the surface of Earth. But first... You may remember two weeks ago that we were discussing failed chemistry experiments on the podcast and how difficult it can be struggling through all the different variations on chemical reactions until you find the one that works. Well, there's another paper in Nature this week that deals with a very similar problem in a very different way. This time for making antibiotics. Sharmini Bundel investigates.
5: Antibiotics are pretty important, I think we can all agree. And given that bugs keep evolving resistance to our old favourites, we're in constant need of new ones. Now, the natural world provides plenty of possible antibiotic molecules. But once scientists have identified a candidate, they need to find a way of making it.
6: So the way I like to look at it is we are playing with life's Legos.
5: This is Ian Seipel from the University of California, San Francisco.
6: We are looking at a target structure, which you could think of as a picture you get when you buy a a Lego kit that's of this final structure that you're going to assemble. In our case, it's a molecular structure. And we're thinking about ways that we can run reactions in a given sequence to put it together from scratch. And it's, it's really a lot of trial and error to find your way to your target structure.
5: The target structures are usually inspired by naturally occurring antibiotics, but Ian is trying to build the molecules up from their basic constituent parts, just like Lego. This is called total synthesis. But it's not as simple as just recreating one natural antibiotic. There could be variations that work even better or cause fewer side effects in humans. To find the perfect antibiotic, chemists like Ian have to come up with a whole load of variations to test. And the standard Lego brick approach for building molecules is not great for this.
6: Starting from one Lego piece, putting another piece on it, putting another piece on it, a single person building it up one piece at a time, um, all the way to the end target. And that's pretty limiting because you have to go through the whole synthesis every time you want to change your final Lego target.
5: So Ian and his colleagues have been trying out a new strategy, for coming up with lots of variations on a molecule quickly and efficiently.
6: If you think about a big Lego structure that you're trying to build, the best way to build it would be to have two people, each build one half of the structure, and then they put the two halves together. And that's what we use, what we call in synthesis, a convergent synthesis. So you break each of the halves into halves, and then each of those halves into halves so that you have this multiply convergent way of putting your final structure together so they can assemble it much faster and more efficiently.
5: This method of making up different parts separately means you can change one of the parts at a time without having to do the whole sequence all over again. And coming up with new options quickly has gotten more and more important since the early days of antibiotics. I asked Nature's chief news and views editor, Andy Mitchinson, to explain why
7: back in the forties and fifties, you didn't have resistance to worry about. And I guess that meant that if you found a compound that was active against bacteria, then the bacteria didn't know what hit them. Whereas, you know, many decades down the line, oh yes, they know what's hitting them now. And they've found lots of strategies to overcome this.
5: In their paper in this week's Nature, Ian Seipel and his team have used this convergent synthesis method to make about 300 different variations of a particular class of antibiotics called macrolides. These variations were then tested for how well they stopped the growth of bacteria. Some did badly, some seem to do even better than already existing variants. Now, this is just the first step. We don't know if they're suitable for use in humans yet. But in the ongoing arms race against antibiotic resistance, we've now got a lot more potential weapons to work with. Here's Andy Mitchinson again.
7: I think one thing that this paper shows is how important organic chemistry is to drug discovery. Um, because methods like this can make a huge difference to the number of compounds you can make, and the more compounds you can make, the better your chances are of finding a new antibiotic in the future. I mean, the idea of, of these, these so-called convergent synthetic strategies is not in itself particularly new, but this is a, an incredibly good example of one. They can use it, I suppose, as a, as a case study of how you would do this for other classes of antibiotics.
6: Chemistry has advanced a lot since we started making molecules, and it's advanced to the point where it allows us to put together molecules in very efficient ways now. Almost conceivably any molecule could be made by a convergent efficient synthesis and you start to see chemists prioritize efficiency and robustness in the ways they assemble molecules. And I think that that's going to become much more prevalent as we start to target more complex structures as drug candidates. And our work is just one example of that on the macrolide class of antibiotics.
3: That was Ian Seipel from the University of California, San Francisco. And Sharmini also talked to Nature's own Andy Mitchinson, who runs the News and Views team. You can find Ian's paper and the News and Views article discussing the paper at nature.com forward slash nature.
0: There's even more to love this week on the Nature podcast feed. If you haven't checked out this month's backchat, just wait till the end of this episode and then just go press play on the next one. Adam and friends discuss virtual reality, fusion power, and that boat that got given a name. Still to come, changing the course of
3: genetics. The
0: teaching course, that is.
8: But
3: first, the research highlights. Here's Corrie Locke.
8: Researchers have discovered rocks that contain material dating back to the first 50 million years of the solar system's history. The rocks formed from cooling lava that erupted off the coast of Northern Canada and in the Southwest Pacific Ocean, two places that scientists think tap deep and ancient sources of lava. The researchers found that these rocks contain high levels of tungsten 182, an isotope that was created early in Earth's history. The discovery suggests that even as the interior of our planet churns away, some primordial material still survives today. The study was published in the journal Science, The mosquito-borne Zika virus continues to infect people in Latin America, and in pregnant women, it puts fetuses at risk of birth defects. Now researchers have come up with a rapid test that can detect the virus in human blood samples. The test is a simple strip of paper embedded with RNA sensors that bind to viral RNA sequences. This triggers a chemical reaction that changes the color of the paper. It takes about five days to design the RNA sensors and produce the paper strips, and roughly three hours to run the test. This could make the diagnostic useful during disease outbreaks. You can find the paper in the journal Cell.
0: Nearly time for the news chat, and Noah has Lizzie Gibney on standby to talk about Brazilian science on the rocks and a mirror image version of a key DNA enzyme.
3: Right now, though, Kerry asks, why should scientists have all the fun running experiments? In this week's Worldview column, science historian Greg Raddick gets in on the act with an experiment of his own.
0: What if? It's the question that launched a thousand experiments. Scientists ask this question all the time, and luckily they can get out the telescope or go to the lab and just find out the answer. But when it comes to science history, it's already happened. You can't just go back and rerun it. Unless you're Greg Raddick.
1: I'm Greg Raddick, and I work at the University of Leeds. Uh, there really hasn't been anything like our experiment before.
0: Radic wants to experiment with history to answer a question from the past of genetics. It's a what-if question, and it concerns a guy called Gregor Mendel. You've probably come across him. Mendel was an Austrian monk, and to many, the father of genetics. When he wasn't monking around, he was studying pea plants in his spare time. He would take green peas and yellow peas and breed them, and what he saw was that they never seemed to have greeny-yellow offspring. They either had green or yellow. He concluded that pea plants inherited traits in a kind of neat, modular way. This is Genetics 101, the first thing biology students are often taught when they sit down at the beginning of their biology courses. But actually, there was a lot of controversy at the time about whether Mendel was right. His critics, most notably
1: a guy named Walter Frank Raphael Weldon,
0: said that the picture seemed a bit simplistic. Weldon published a paper in 1902 arguing against
1: Mendel's ideas. Here's Greg Raddick again. And in this beautiful paper, he published a photograph, and it was a colour photograph, which is kind of unusual uh, for that era. Uh, So it was coloured in conventional ways, but what he tried to show was that Nobody else's peas looked like Gregor Mendel's. Uh, He'd been collecting peas from breeders. And what he found and tried to show was that they didn't, in fact, come in either green or yellow categories, either round or wrinkled. Real peas uh, showed a spectrum. In historical memory, this uh, looks like a kind of misguided nitpicking.
0: But it's more profound than that. Weldon's picture is much more nuanced and much closer to what biology today has come to realise must be happening. The traits are a messy mixture of inherited units interacting with each other and their environments. And so to Raddick's question. What if Mendel hadn't beaten off his critics?
1: Uh, The question that has kind of obsessed me is whether uh, the debate that took place uh, around Gregor Mendel's work after it was rediscovered in 1900. Uh, whether that debate might have gone differently than it actually did. You know, what would have happened if the losing side, uh, the opponents to Mendel, had been a little bit more effective than they were in getting their point of view across? What would the history of biology have been like? What would the history of society have been like?
0: To try to answer these questions, Raddick did something quite unusual. He and his colleagues imagined what a biology course would look like today if Weldon had won. They literally rewrote the biology textbook.
1: Uh, we developed the Weldonian curriculum and we taught it to one group of students. Uh, and uh, at the same time, our uh, colleagues in Leeds were teaching the uh, usual first year biologists the usual Mendelian curriculum.
0: The team actually tried to teach the course to two sets of first-year biologists for a better controlled study.
1: But it quickly became clear that for entirely appropriate reasons, the university wouldn't allow that. Instead, for this pilot,
0: they taught the alternative course to 30 history of science students and used the biologists as a control. The Mendelian curriculum emphasises simple, clean patterns and steers away from interactions with the environment. Phenotypes that aren't just a choice of two, but a sliding scale.
1: What would it be like, what would students be like, if we'd reversed that? If the interactions became central and the simple patterns, which seem to be so much in a minority uh, out there in nature, what if they were treated as peripheral? Would any of that have any cognitive consequences?
0: It certainly did the students took a survey designed to reveal how much they believed that genes determine biology.
1: Uh, We got them to take this survey before they took their course, and then again at the end. And what we found was that the kids coming out of the straight-up Mendelian course were just as deterministic about genes at the end of the course as they were at the start, whereas the kids coming out of our course, the Weldonian course, we're less deterministic about genes at the end.
0: But surely I hear the teachers of the world scream, we already know that what you teach and the way you teach it impacts what your students turn out believing. But Radick points out that with genetics, there's only really been one teaching tradition, and that lack of diversity can't be
1: good. There really isn't a great deal of manoeuvre for teachers who uh, might be a little bit sceptical, might want to do things a little bit differently. I've been told stories, for example, of, uh, about uh, you know, a young maverick teacher at a university in South America who decided that he wasn't going to teach students Mendelian Genetics day one, lecture one. But once his colleagues learned what he had done, his colleagues sat those students down and taught them their Mendelian Genetics you know, on the view that he'd done them this massive disservice. Uh, So I I like that story because it it does suggest, and indeed correctly in my view, uh, just how invested some people, not all people, but some people are in the idea that there is one right way to do things. Uh, It's the way they've done things for over a century. It starts with Mendel because it all starts with Mendel.
0: That was Greg Raddick. He's written about his study in this week's World View column, which you can find at nature.com news or in the pages of the mag itself.
3: Finally this week, it's the news chat. And joining me in the studio is Nature reporter and pod regular Lizzie Gibney. Hi, now. Now, listeners may be aware that there's a new film version of Lewis Carroll's classic book, Alice Through the Looking Glass, coming out. We're not going to talk about that, even though I am very excited. But I am going to use it as a very professional and slick way to segue into our first story, which is looking at life through the looking glass, specifically DNA.
9: That's right, we are. Um, So as I'm sure our listeners know, uh, life seems to prefer one hand or another generally. So we have, let me see if I can get this right. DNA is always right-handed and we have amino acids that are left-handed. And we could talk on for hours about why that is, nobody really knows. Um, But what some people are trying to do right now is take the little baby steps towards eventually perhaps creating a whole mirror image through the looking glass entire cell Um, and what we've actually had in this paper this week which is in nature chemistry is a little small step along the road to that.
3: And so when we say right-handed here if we imagine the twist of the DNA helix it's twisting round in one direction and it always goes in that direction but we're going to go in the other direction.
9: Exactly so you might imagine it like you have a right-handed glove and a left-handed glove and they seem very much similar and they can do a lot of the same things but actually um, they are they are mirror images you cannot
3: put one on top of the other. So, interesting concept. My first question is, why do you want to do that?
9: Well, so the idea is if you have these mirror image versions of molecules, um, they will work just like normal ones, but then they're, they're going to be resistant to attack by our uh, normal kinds of viruses, or they might not be broken down by regular enzymes because they literally just, like lock and key, do not fit together. So you might have um, something which is uh, a therapy, some kind of medicine, but which can't be broken down by your body's enzymes.
3: Again, sounds like a very good goal. Scientists here have been making a step towards that goal. What is that? That step.
9: So what they've done now is we've had for a little while we've had these left-handed so the the, the mirror image uh, DNA strands. What they've now done is created a DNA DNA polymerase. So that is basically what allows the DNA to be copied. They've they basically cobbled together um, a very very short polymerase called an African the African swine fever virus polymerase X. And they've cobbled together that out of a few smaller amino acid chunks which again are the the opposite the the right-handed amino acids. And they found that just like it's its natural equivalent it's able to um, take a 12 nucleotide DNA primer so the little kind of starter of the, of the copying process and um, and extend that up to 56 nucleotides. So um, it did take quite a while though I think it, th- it took 36 hours.
3: So scientists can do some very slow, very limited bits of DNA copying at the moment. How far away are we from doing some proper? proper DNA copying?
9: Well, so DNA copying, I think they are trying to make more efficient polymerases so that eventually they can do this um, at, at a greater pace. Um, but I mean, the ultimate goal is, and something that George Church, who I'm sure we've heard a lot about, he's doing some quite exciting work at the moment, um, that's something that he wants to do is make this whole mirror image cell. Um, but actually getting to that point is still a huge challenge. So now, you know, we have we have DNA strands, we have, um, we have these polymerases. One of the fundamental parts of, of any cell is is the ribosomes that's the the complex machinery that translates the RNA into proteins um and that at the moment is just far beyond um the capability of anybody so I think that is a very very daunting task uh, but something that they are still trying to work towards so whilst we've got li- lots of the little bits in place um the final product the mirror image cell is is, is still quite far away
3: Okay, and next up, we've got a story which is maybe a little bit more exciting and actually a little bit daunting for many scientists. We're heading to Brazil and looking at changes in the structure of the way science is funded and supported in the Brazilian government.
9: Exactly. So if you've been paying attention to the news lately, you'll know that um, Brazil's president, Dilma Rousseff, um, has be- is in the process of being impeached. So she was suspended um, by the Senate last week. Well, that means that there's a new temporary government in place led by Michel Temer. Uh, he's there uh, in the middle of this financial crisis. So so he's pledged that he'll reduce the number of ministries. So I think it's gone down from thirty-two to twenty-two, um, and part of that process means that he's merging the science ministry with the telecommunications ministry. And scientists in Brazil are not happy at all. It may seem like a just you know a very nominal thing. Okay, now it comes under a different banner, but actually. A lot of the time in countries where they take science really seriously, it has its own ministry and where they recognise the importance for the economy. And so people are um, very unhappy that they think it might now be overshadowed by all the issues that this one single ministry will have to deal with.
3: And this seems like a particularly bad bit of timing for the scientists in Brazil. On the podcast last week, we were talking about Brazilian scientists and their battle against Zika virus. Is this a particularly bad time for science funding and science organisations to be up, you know, upheaved like this?
9: It really is. So at the, recently, in the past um, year or so, Brazilian scientists have been really struggling. And um, as I mentioned, that they've, they've had a lot of financial difficulties in the country overall, and science has really suffered. So an awful lot of grants have gone unpaid. And we've got some people telling our, our reporter in the piece about how in some labs, the, uh, the researchers are splitting basic costs like for phone bills and internet bills. They're paying themselves, which I, I, kind of, I love the dedication of that. But the fact that they're in that situation it makes it in- incredibly hard to do the kind of world-class science that Brazilian scientists were beginning to do before this financial crisis hit.
3: And one way that scientists tend to respond to these sorts of situations is to simply leave the country that's not supporting them. Is this something that the Brazil is risking as well?
9: Exactly. So we've got an example of that in the story. Um, a, a top scientist, Susana Herculana-Huzel, who's a, a neuroscientist at the Federal University of Rio, um, she's she's shutting down her lab and she's moving over to um, Vanderbilt University in the States. And when I wrote a story on the, the financial crisis in Brazil last year, lots and lots of people told me that that's what they were thinking about or that they were advising. their their best um, graduate students to do, to just just go to another country, at least for the foreseeable future. So that is going to no doubt make the situation even worse down the line.
3: So the current situation is happening under an interim president. At what point do you think this might change? And is there any light at the end of the tunnel for scientists in Brazil? Do we know?
9: I think light at the end of the tunnel will just come from uh, an uptick in the economy. Um, the interim government is supposed to do that. The new president is a lot more market-friendly, but uh, we, it's still very much in flux. So the trial process of, of the, uh, the current president, John Rousseff, lasts 180 days or up to 180 days. Um, so until then, the current government will be temporary. Either way, though, the issue may be that the damage is already done. I mean, Brazil spent years building up this reputation as being the the science powerhouse in in South America, um, but it may it may already have been fundamentally damaged, and we'll we'll have to st- start building up again, even if we get over this economic crisis.
3: And as with so many of our stories, I suppose that's going to be a wait and see situation. You can read more about both of those stories online at nature.com forward slash news.
0: Join us next time as we explore how clouds form in the lab. And in the meantime, if you need more ear-based science news, head over to our archive. Surely you haven't listened to the whole back catalogue already.
3: As always, if you'd like to leave us a little review, please do. Find us on iTunes.
0: I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Kerry Smith. this episode of The Nature Podcast has whet your appetite for scientific research, check out Scientific Reports, the open access home for all scientifically sound research. They publish articles from all areas of the natural and clinical sciences. If you publish with them, you can expect fast and fair peer review and great exposure, with over 2 million visitors a month to the website, nature.com srep. If you're one of the visitors, you can expect studies ranging from how to tell apart African from Asian elephant tusks using handheld X-ray devices, to a study suggesting that pain tolerance correlates with how many friends you have. For all this and more, visit Scientific Reports at nature.com/srep.